Now joining us as he does every Tuesday from Washington, D.C., Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold. Uh, David, last night in uh, in uh, Iowa, Trump, of course, uh, ran away with it. And I wanted to play this uh, clip that I didn't get to play a few minutes ago of J.B. Pritzker, Illinois governor, on MSNBC, Democrat, uh, saying that this is actually good news for Democrats because Trump only got 51% of the vote. Here's his argument. Almost half of the base of the Republican Party showing up for this caucus tonight voted against Donald Trump. Think about that. I mean, this is the most famous Republican. He's the guy who, you know, basically built the modern Republican Party, the MAGA Republican Party that Democrats are running against. And half the people in that party didn't vote for Donald Trump. So I think that is telling. It tells you the weakness of Donald Trump and also the opportunity for Democrats. Because in the end, look, uh, if the base doesn't turn out for Donald Trump in the general election enthusiastically and Democrats turn out its base, this is all about, you know, independence, and independents don't like Donald Trump. Does that make any sense, David? <laughs> well, it's what you got to say if you're Democrats, I and mean, I'm sure they would have preferred him to get less. Look, he did get 51 percent, which is, uh, you know, as the governor said, only half of the Republicans have voted. But Trump is very lucky again in that, A, he's way ahead of his opponents, and B, his opponents are continuing to split the anti-Trump vote. So Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley both got about 20 percent. They're both going to continue. This seems like just a repeat of 2016 when Trump's rivals, you know, every one of them didn't see a reason to drop out. And so they all split the vote and Trump romped. I, at this point, I think Trump is a pretty clear path to the Republican nomination, at least. Right. So um, what's what are Nikki Haley's chances at this point? Everyone was pointing to her as the Trump alternative. She she said last night in, in her in her speech, uh, she's yeah, came in third, didn't come in second, came in third, said that um, in a head-to-head matchup with Biden, she it's a landslide for her. Oh, it's true. I mean, every every poll I've seen shows that she is way ahead from nine points to 17 points of Biden. Uh, I just don't think she's going to get there. I, I think New Hampshire is her best shot, which is in a week. Uh, if she beats Trump there, maybe it's a new race. Maybe Tristantis drops out. But, you know, after New Hampshire, there's not really – I mean, for, for DeSantis, there's nothing great for him after Iowa. So now he's in real trouble, but he's staying in. For, for Haley, if she doesn't beat Trump in New Hampshire, I think there's no state right after New Hampshire where she has as good of a chance. New Hampshire has a lot of moderates. A lot of Democrats are going to be voting in the Republican primary. So, you know, she has a shot there. But I don't think either one of them has a great shot now at building enough momentum to solidify the anti-Trump coalition. Now, in the uh, editorial pages of your newspaper, The New York Times, they wrote this, quote, at this critical moment, it is imperative to remind voters that they still have the opportunity to nominate a different standard bearer for the Republican Party, and all Americans should hope that they do so. This is not a partisan concern. It is good for the country when both major parties have qualified presidential candidates to put forward their competing views on the role of government in American society. Voters deserve such a choice in 2024. So the editorial board of the New York Times really, really, really doesn't think Donald Trump should be getting the, the uh, Republican nomination. What are they thinking? I don't think that that's going to change Republican voters' minds, unfortunately. I mean, they seem to really like Trump, and I think they, you know, this is years and years of, of Fox News and evangelical churches and other people saying, you know, the most important thing is to beat Democrats. The most important thing is to, you know, to, to impose our will on the country, you know, and in sort of encouraging sort of extreme views. And Trump just gives voice to the things, the reason he succeeds is he gives voice to the things that people have heard on TV. 
so I, I don't think that they're going to turn back on him now. He seems to embody the modern Republican Party much more than anybody else. Yeah, I haven't I haven't checked his website lately. Is there are there actual issues at stake here, or is it basically about making a statement by uh, giving him a second term? Well, I think. It, to the degree there are, are issues, they're focused on immigration. I mean, they really, really focus on immigration, building the wall, you know, taking some extreme measures to deport immigrants, things like that. Um, but no, it, it's a lot of, and I think this will, this will is what could shift the dynamic of the race once it becomes Biden and Trump. A lot of what Trump actually talks about on the trail is just himself and 2020 and how he feels like he was cheated out of the election. So, I, you know, I, there was a really good uh, story in The Atlantic the other day about what it's like to go to a Trump rally now. Yes. And a lot of it's just sort of rambling, self-indulgent. Uh, sort of conspiracy theories. And so I think maybe when we get to the general election, if it's really Trump versus Biden, people will see the current Trump rather than sort of the Trump they remember from 2018 and 2019. That could shift the dynamics of the race, but it hasn't so far. Yeah. Well, I read that article and uh, it it struck me as being a reporter's wishful thinking that uh, Trump supporters will find him boring because he saw a couple people leave a Trump rally before it was <laughs> over. I mean, come on. The I think whether they stay for the whole rally or not, he still embodies the message that a lot of people, uh, especially uh, Christian evangelicals, want to send to the rest of the country, don't you think? Yeah, which is basically, you know, the white Americans are being, you know, white conservative Americans are being trodden upon and it's time for them to reassert their power and right. But I think the elections can be fought over independent. And, you know, it is true that if you see Trump talk now, a lot of what he speaks is, is in this sort of weird shorthand, but you have to be way, way down the rabbit hole to understand. So to the degree that that matters, it you know it could matter for independence, not for his base. The question is just whether what independents are going to vote on is not what Trump's saying now, but what they remember about, you know, 2019 and 20, 2018 and 2019, how much money they had, how great the economy was. You know, they're they're wanting to go back to that time rather than really focusing on what the current Trump is like. On the Democratic side, uh, any anything to report there? Any more whisperings about uh, finding some sort of alternative to Joe Biden, or is is that pretty much uh, dead and buried? No, I think it's I think it's gone. I mean, it, Biden will be the nominee minus some sort of health crisis or some other disaster that prevents him from being it. I don't think I see anybody replacing him on the ticket. Yeah. On the uh, Boeing issue, the uh, inspections continue. This has been a, a bad stretch for Boeing. But uh, there was a, a story this morning that uh, led to a, a brief discussion in the newsroom. There was a, a couple of uh, planes, which, what was it, Chris, touched wingtips Yeah, they touched something? wingtips there. You know, one of those things we see when the pilots get a little too close together on their tarmac. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the way it was covered was two Boeing planes collide on runway or something like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's uh, and it had nothing whatever to do with the uh, the door plug uh, falling out. So explain the journalistic decision that leads to a headline like that. Well, it's certainly not a decision I would have made for Boeing. And this is you know maybe one of the downsides of a near monopoly, right? If you're one of two people who makes airplanes, <laughs> so if, you know your airplanes are more likely to run into each other. If any airplanes are going to run into each other, yeah, I uh, I agree. Since you make a lot of airplanes, once in a while. When planes collide, <laughs> right. they're going to have a Boeing brand on them. David Farrell. That does not seem to be Boeing's fault. Right. From the New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. I, oh.
Let's go. Choke points, frozen cables, and a crackdown at the pass. Let's begin, Chris, with the tolling problems on 167 and 405. Yeah, and it seems that this is all cold weather related because we know we've been talking about bursting pipes in the Pacific Northwest in a deep freeze the last couple of days. That severe cold has been messing with the state's tolling equipment on 405 and 167. We got word over the weekend that the tolling division had to turn off the equipment on those two freeways because it wasn't generating consistent toll. They were having problems with the electronic equipment. The toll lanes were HOV only both Sunday and Monday. Well, the Washington Department of Transportation told me late yesterday, it's likely that their fiber optic cables froze. The conduits that they're in froze. Froze? They be- Yes, that's what they believe happened. And they say when that does happen, uh, they can get uh, communication interruptions along that uh, the corridor and through that conduit and so that's what they were dealing with but what's odd is that the deep freeze only impacted 405 and 167 not 99 and 520 so Washdot isn't sure why certain cables were impacted engineers are still searching for the specific reason the 167 tolling system has had cold weather issues like this in the past but we're in the past but we are back to normal operations today so that's their preliminary belief uh, but they're doing some more investigative work. But the bottom line is we're back to normal today. I had no idea that, I mean, fiber optic cables are essentially glass. Right. But the conduits uh, are most likely a composite that maybe is not quite doesn't really respond and well to super underground, sun. right? Yeah, they're... true. So, but that that's their initial impression. Wow. Okay. Again, I'm not a conduit master. I know I am our driver's <laughs> conduit, and I'm glad to do it, which everyone seems to like to make fun of. <laughs> which I can't believe How I just said again. Uh, ever since choke point started, <laughs> like right. nine years ago. Nine years ago. Okay. Uh, you want to talk about the pass? Yes, talk about uh, the pass. Drivers over Snoqualmie Pass have been seeing a lot of state troopers lately. Uh, as we know, the pass has been shut down a couple times this winter because of accidents. Uh, spin-outs, drivers who refuse to follow the restrictions. Uh, as we've talked about, any vehicle weighing over 10,000 pounds needs to carry chains from November to April. Troopers haven't been shy about enforcement. In the last week, just the last week, troopers have ticketed 159 people for not having their chains on when required on Snoqualmie Pass. This includes commercial and non-commercial vehicles. Another 23 people were ticketed for not carrying chains, which is the requirement. Each one of these ticket prices... $500. So they're doing a lot of enforcement this winter, I think, after the last couple of years of people uh, seem to be blowing off those restrictions and getting into trouble. Yeah. Yeah, it is a thing. Here's an article that's headlined, What Freezing Weather Can Do to Your Fiber Optic Cable. So who knew? Right now we're going to talk about your health. Uh, we can share that Colleen has embarked on a personal journey. What? <laughs> You're making it sound so dramatic. To become healthier in 2024. So what does that mean exactly? Well, I think for some people you hear, oh, I want to get healthy and it's lose weight, right? Mm -hmm. That's not where I'm at. Like my health is slowing way down and just making small adjustments. Like last week when you were gone on Friday, we talked with a writer for the Washington Post, a dietitian about you just reduce your salt intake by one teaspoon a day. And over the course of a week, it has the same impact as blood pressure medication. Salt? Really easy. Yes. Yeah, we talked. Yeah, that's right. You were gone Friday, but you were part of that interview. And it only takes like two months to adjust your taste buds to less salt. So really easy. And then I found another writer for the New York Times, Jancy Dunn, who was talking about, we all know how foods make us feel if they make us feel bad, right? We can all reflect and go, ooh, I should not have had that taco. You know, that made my stomach hurt. Rarely, though, do we reflect when foods make us feel good. 
give us energy, yeah. give us a pep in our step. And that's what she's encouraging is to pay more attention to how you feel when you feel good. What we found when we were researching this challenge is that if you're like me or a lot of people are like me, when I'm done eating, I don't think about how food made me feel. I'm on to the next meal. I'm the sort of person that wakes up in the morning and I've already planned my meals in my head. I'm yes. just constantly thinking ahead, me right? Too. Like, me oh. too. <laughs> and that's very common behavior. But what is less common is to look back and think, okay, that food that I ate, how did it make me feel? How did it affect my energy levels? Was it a, a good idea or maybe a not so good idea in terms of sustaining me throughout the day? So that's what we crafted the exercise around. It was simply, you know, we had Dr. Nate Wood, um, and he's a culinary medicine researcher at Yale School of Medicine. He's also a trained chef. And so he and I were talking and he said that rarely do we look back and reflect on how foods that we ate made us feel unless maybe your stomach is upset, you know, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have had that taco or whatever. And so that's what the exercise was. It was after three meals and say you have a snack in the afternoon, about an hour and a half after you've eaten, um, you know, when digestion is underway, just think back and rate on a scale from one to five. How did the food make you feel energy wise? And, you know, I I write about this stuff. I've been immersed in nutrition research and wellness and health research for two decades. And even I realized, oh, I eat a kind of a cereal in the morning and I burn it off quickly. And then I have what I call a second breakfast, which is from Lord of the Rings nerd. Um, it, <laughs> one of the hobbits says, oh, I, ha I have to have my second breakfast now. And Every day I have a second breakfast and I realized, oh, it's because I eat just quickie cereal and that's just carbs. And I needed something a little more substantial to sustain me until lunch. And when I did that, when I added um, protein to my breakfast, I didn't need a second breakfast. Hmm. I needed one breakfast. So that's kind of what we had um, the readers do alongside of us just to Tune in on how food affects us to look back instead of forward. What foods are more likely to help us feel energized and full for longer? Well, uh, the magic combination, according to Dr. Wood and the other experts that we uh, chatted with, is fiber, protein, and carbs. So if you kind of just keep that formula, you know, we, we definitely don't, we step away from kind of diet culture and things like that. So we don't, we, we just wanted to provide very broad guidelines. But if you have that combo, then it will keep you full longer. It will keep your energy levels um, humming. And we even were trying different things like one of my colleagues at the New York Times, she has two young children and she just, you know, doesn't have time in the morning. So she eats leftovers for breakfast. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, you know, why not? I said, what kind of foods do you eat? And she she eats things like um, uh, eggplant Parmesan. And I thought, oh, well, I, I'm not used to that. I'm used to having something sweet. But in so many other cultures, people have fish for breakfast, seaweed, rice. They, you know, there's not this kind of stricture about, oh, you should have a Danish. So I've started eating leftovers for breakfast. It's sort of like um, the opposite of when you have dinner. I mean, when you have a breakfast for dinner, you know, sometimes when people are having eggs or something or, or French toast. So I switched it and it's really helped me too. 
And that's because most dinners are made of that magic combination, right? We have fiber, we have protein, we have a complex carb often for dinner. Whereas for breakfast, the American breakfast is sugar. I mean, other than bacon, which sometimes you can even find candied bacon, it is by and large sugar. Exactly. That is Jancy Dunn. She's a writer for The New York Times. We talked more in depth about American diet culture and we looked at carbohydrates, which so many are phobic of, right? Like, oh, I don't eat carbs and the difference between complex carbs and all all to sort of help us help us make better choices and reflect on the foods we're eating. Candied bacon sounds delicious. Mm. Oh, I've had a BLT with candied. It was the best BLT. It was on focaccia and then it was candied bacon with agave blistered cherry tomatoes, mm. herbed goat cheese, Jeez. and some arugula. Mm. Why? Now I'm hungry. Why, See, you get why me did ta- you ruin that bacon? <laughs> uh, oh, I don't discriminate. <laughs> Any BLT I'll eat. So we're going to talk more about food. We'll get your appetite uh, really yeah, humming coming up at 8.15. Bacon donuts, too. <laughs> Here's an update on the attacks on shipping in the Middle East. In the Gulf of Aden, which leads into the Red Sea, a U.S. cargo ship was hit by a missile fired by Houthi rebels who are trying to punish us for supporting Israel. And some defense experts are pushing for a stronger American response to these attacks. In an article in The Atlantic, former State Department advisor Elliot Cohen dismissed the U.S. approach of hitting Houthi launch sites as, quote, therapeutic bombing. So I called up CBS military analyst Jeff McCausland to ask him what he thinks about that strategy. The current strategy, I think, is described as, you know, measured escalation. And clearly what the Biden administration had tried to do was deterrence through denial initially, and that is shoot down any of the missiles, drones, or, or cruise missiles that the Houthis launch. And the destroyers we have operating in that area were pretty successful. I think, secondly, we have to keep in mind this is not a U.S. versus Houthis problem. This is an international community versus the Houthis. As the United States has formed a coalition of over 20 countries called Prosperity Guardian Operation to, in fact, allow free operation of maritime shipping and and commercial activities in this very important uh, waterway. And participation in airstrikes against the Houthis included British aircraft as well as support by Australia, Canada, and even Bahrain. Finally, of course, in that international vein, there was a Security Council resolution that was passed announcing the Houthis which was passed through the Security Council, uh, the Chinese and the Russians abstained, but they did not object to it. This is an international problem. So the effort initially was deterrence through denial. That failed. And now we're moving towards deterrence through punishment, and that is responding. Now, we can argue whether or not 100 precision-guided missiles was enough versus 150 or 60 targets versus 80, but that seems to me a tactical decision. The real issue here, of course, is two things. One, to get them to stop doing this, to open up these waterways, which will have an effect on global commerce, number one. But number two, try to do that in a fashion that at least stems the possibility of broader escalation and moving this war in Gaza from being one confined there to the Gaza Strip to one that could be broadly across the entire Middle East. What about the idea of punishing the Houthis' sponsor, that being Iran? Well, clearly one could do that. And then Special Operations Forces, oh, by the way, over the night, also intercepted a small vessel in international waters, Iranian vessel, that was carrying uh, critical missile parts, cruise missile warheads, guidance systems and the like, bound for the Houthis. And that was intercepted by our forces. So there's clear evidence and known for a long time Iran is involved here. A direct attack against Iran uh, could be conducted. The Biden administration has suggested they've had some messaging with Iran, which have been direct. But to do so, of course, would move in that direction I said a moment ago. And that clearly would probably elicit a major war across the region. 
Iran would respond more likely using its proxies. We've seen over 100 attacks against U.S. forces in Syria and in Iraq, those by Iraqi Shiite militia groups sponsored by Iran. We've seen uh, continued attacks by Hezbollah in southern Lebanon against targets in northern Israel, to the point that over 125,000 Israelis have evacuated northern uh, Israel, and we would see an intensification of that as well as fighting in Syria. So the problem is one could go to the source and hopefully believe that might cause this to stop, but it also has those grave risks of wider escalation in a broader regional conflict. We're hearing from CBS military analyst Jeff McCausland. The other issue to discuss is Ukraine, which has dropped off the international radar. So I asked Jeff for an update on that conflict now that military aid from the U.S. has run out. Weapons aid has run out, and their situation, I think, is becoming more dire. They freely admit now that they've moved to a defensive strategy. Part of that is driven by the fact that their counteroffensive, which began last June, did not achieve in any way, shape, or form the objectives they had hoped for. And, oh, by the way, the arrival of winter, which makes the battlefield a much more difficult place to maneuver on. But we have, there's increasing reports of artillery units in Ukraine only having one or two rounds to fire per day, maybe. Tank units only a couple of rounds. And that is because of the drying up of that military aid. Meanwhile, of course, the United States Congress can't even pass a, a budget for last year, let alone this coming year. Um, and as a consequence, all this is held up by the frustration that's ongoing in the United States Congress. CBS military consultant Jeff McCausland. Jeff, thanks. Thanks, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft, a story of love lost and found again. We get this unique story from one of our favorites, CBS's Steve Hartman. To me, some of the saddest tombstones are the incompletes, the couples where one has passed, but the other still present, buried above under a mound of loneliness, (laughs) such as the case of Blossom the Goose. Last August, Blossom lost her mate, Bud. They'd lived on the pond here at Riverside Cemetery in Marshalltown, Iowa. And according to cemetery staff, after Bud died, Blossom's grief was as evident as any human's. Her behavior was just, it was quite a change. General Manager Dory Tommen says Blossom started hanging out near the front office, always staring at herself in the glass or the model tombstones. She wanted company. Even if it's just a reflection. Yeah. And that's when Dory got a crazy idea. A hysterically lovely, crazy idea. She posted a personal ad that read in part, Lonely widowed domestic goose seeks life partner for companionship and occasional shenanigans. I'm youthful, adventurous, and lively. I mean, what are the odds you're going to find some goose, a male goose? Oh, in Iowa? (laughs) Apparently, this state is lousy with bachelor geese. So the phone rings? Mm Mm-hmm. And what do you hear? Honk, 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 honk. No, I didn't hear anything like that. (laughs) Instead, she heard humans Deb and Randy Hoyt, owners of a widower goose named Frankie. He needed a mate. Yeah, and plus he, he's so lonely. You know, I thought, well, that'll be great, you know. And so they set up a blind date where Blossom welcomed Frankie with open wings. They started walking off together, and they haven't really left each other's side since. A loving reminder 
that until your last day is etched in stone, don't ever give up on finding goosebumps. And joining us now, G. Scott. I had the most delicious piece of banana bread yesterday. Thanks to you. I, I gave him half of mine because he had to try it. Did, did you like it, Dave? I love it. Okay, good. That was from that was Lillian, his wife. Banana. Yeah, we're going to, uh, I mean, you guys are going to be our uh, guinea pigs yeah. because I'm not eating that. And so she's working on her, getting her recipe together. It's delicious. It's the best banana bread I've ever tasted. Oh, thank you. So thank explain you. to us why you're not eating it. Well, I'm on uh, day 16. Oh, that's right. I told you guys at the beginning of the year that I was going to cut bread and sugar. <laughs> because and, Double what? whammy. Well, well, the goal was to cut bread. I thought I wanted to cut bread for 2024. You consider yourself overweight? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I think, um, I think that, uh, I mean, look, I think we can all say this. Compared to what I used to be, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the pandemic put a lot of us off track, too. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, so what happened was, is I started with the whole bread, and that was the goal. But I said, you know what? Maybe I'll see how long I can go with the sugar and see how that goes. And it's like, oh, man, it's hard, and withdrawals and headaches and all, the, all that kind of stuff. So what I've been doing is, is I've been, like, as I'm doing it, also researching and reading the information that I never knew that we don't even talk about. I thought that Colleen, your interview that you did was just absolutely spot on talking about the foods that do give us energy Mm -hmm. as opposed to the food that make us, right? I think (laughs) we're going to have more from that interview coming up at 8.15. So, and Oh, by the way, in that interview, she talked about having like bringing leftovers for breakfast. And she says, and you know, you can have like eggplant Parmesan. I text the text line. Because I have eggplant parmesan. And you're going to eat that for breakfast? It's already gone. (laughs) (laughs) So did you experience the withdrawals from sugar? Did you? A little, a little bit. Okay. Felt a little tired, um, but it wasn't as bad as I thought. I felt a little tired. I got a little bit of the headache part. I think it helps that I have a coffee addiction. Mm-hmm. So I kind of can that kind of help, helps feed that. I couldn't imagine if I quit sugar, bread and coffee. No, no, no. That would be too much. Yeah, I'd give up the other two before coffee any day. But but these things that we're talking about, again, the average American eats 60 pounds of added sugar a year. Like I said, that's six bowling balls. Wow. You know what I mean? And we, we that's what we do. You go out of the country, you go other places and you all know. Portion sizes aren't the same. Our bread here is like cake compared to (laughs) Europe, right? And so the more you start to have this, uh, you research this information, you start to realize like, yo, what's going on here? These conversations, for example, they tell you to limit your saturated fats. That's normal, right? When has there ever been a PSA about limiting your steak? (laughs) Right? That's a money thing. Because they can't say, they don't want to say that because there's a lot of money in the whole steak process, but just the saturated fats. Well, you saw what happened to Oprah when she said people should stop eating red meat. I was just about (laughs) to bring that up. You take on a whole industry. And so that, you know, we've interviewed people before that compare sugar to the next big tobacco. And, but go ahead and try to take on sugar. You can't. I'm glad you bring up tobacco. If you look it up today, today is 60 years since the first time the Surgeon General came out and said that tobacco and cigarettes are linked to cancer. Mm. 
That was 60 years ago, right? And you see the progress that has been made now. The foods that we are have been eating, there's a lot of research that's out there, but there's also a lot of capitalism that is going on. Again, I don't want to nerd out, but I wanted to find out why, for me personally, I've had such uh, addiction to food, mm. weak with food. And I'm starting to realize, like, yeah, we have a little help with the stuff that's in our food and the stuff that we're eating. How do you feel? I feel 16 days out. The the biggest thing, the number two, the two things that I noticed the most, my mind is clear. Wow. One, number one. It's affected your mind? Y- y- yes. It's very clear. Like, I, I just, I can process things when I'm stories, news, even having a conversation with you guys. It is really clear. It's That's what focus. I'm focus? Oh, man. It's okay. crazy. Number two, my joints. When I get out of bed, you know, I, you know, I always complain, oh, man, when I get out of bed, so I'm inflammation gonna hurt. is down. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. My joints, my knees don't hurt. My ankles don't ache when it's cold outside. No, it's, it's crazy. Just by, cutting out bread and Just by cutting out bread and sugar. Wow. Good yeah. for you, G. Well, there you so, are. So let's see how long I can last. We'll see how it Especially goes. Especially with Lillian baking. <laughs> how do you not eat it? Come on. You took a little nibble. I, not, you not, didn't even taste don't it and spit it out? Because here, here's the thing. <laughs> I, it's it's no, dic- no different than other addictions. You're if right. I take that bite, yeah. I'm not going to eat a little piece. No. A half. I'm going to eat about three or four. I'm going to put it in the skillet, put some butter around it, fry it up, mm. and then get it. Get a little, sir, a little syrup, a little sauce, put it on the top. I go crazy. Nothing that, wrong with flirting. Yeah. Nothing wrong with flirting. That's the way I am with a bag of raw spinach. You give me one, I just eat the whole thing. It is. He's just flirting with that banana bread. Mickey Gomez is here. David Burbank is here. We're going to talk about the uh, Emmy Awards in case you missed it. So, Mickey, what was the highlight for you? So, the highlight for me was Niecy Nash's acceptance speech. Number one, I remember watching Dahmer in the dark that whole entire series. And then I didn't even know about it on Netflix. It's called Monster. The it's Jeffrey called Monster. Story? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I remember just I was I remember being sick and what am I going to watch? Oh, Niecy Nash is in this. OK. And then I start watching it. And every time Niecy Nash's character was on the screen, I was just enthralled. What like she I play? just she plays the neighbor of Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, OK. And it was amazing. Anyway, she won an award for best supporting actress in a limited series for her role as Glinda Cleveland in Dahmer. And her speech was pretty doggone epic. And you know who I want to thank? I want to thank me mm. <laughs> for believing in me what they said I could not do. Mm-hmm. And then I love how she said, I'm a winner, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a winner. And then she paid tribute to black and brown women. Finally, I accept this award on behalf of every black and brown woman who has gone unheard yet over-policed, like Glenda Cleveland, like Sandra Bland, like Breonna Taylor. And that that was really impactful for me as a brown woman who, you know, has who has experienced certain things growing up in this world. And so when she said those inside words outside, I thought, wow, powerful, powerful. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it was. Tell me more about her role. I I guess I don't Mm -hmm. know much about Jeffrey Dahmer's neighbor. Yeah, so she lived next door to Jeffrey Dahmer, like I mentioned earlier, and she... 
she would complain to the management all the time about the smells. Uh-huh. She would complain about seeing certain men going into his apartment and then never leaving. She also saw one of Jeffrey Dahmer's alleged boyfriends, the very young um, uh, boy who was there and was victimized and was later killed by him. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so that that's where it connects to her speech is not being right. listened to, not being heard, not being taken seriously, all of it. I was just trying to find the yeah. connection between her character and the speech. Yeah, so it was it was just pretty powerful. And I think the the whole celebration was, you know, it, it was an, initially it was going to be in September, the mm-hmm. Emmys. And yeah. because of the SAG after a strike, the it was moved strike, yeah. Yeah, to yesterday, which was coincidentally MLK Jr. Day. Ah. Um, and it was kind of a big day, a big day at the awards for people of color, for actors of color. Mm-hmm. I think that sort of typified um, what this sort of shift in television has mm-hmm. been so many more shows coming out so many more platforms meaning actors of color are able to kind of take center stage a lot more yeah, in these just dramatic seeing on roles. CBS this morning Sofia Vergara she was being interviewed about her upcoming Netflix miniseries mm-hmm. called Griselda which is about a, a woman who becomes a, a narcos boss basically yeah. from Colombia and makes it up and she was saying the same thing and and she they speak Spanish throughout the whole movie the representation uh, an actress of comedy that we know her from Modern Family going into a serious role and she she I was watching the closed captioning when she said, yeah, because I have an accent, I've had to work that much harder to get noticed and recognized as a serious actor. But so. at the same time, I'm like, as as a Mexican-American in this country, I'm like, really? Another, uh, you know, Hispanic or Latina character <laughs> who's going to play a drug lord? I, I mean, know, that's not I what know, we're all about. But another acceptance speech that I thought was really darling and very impactful was Quinta Brunson. She won Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series for Abbott Elementary, which my I family her, and I yeah. love watching that show on Hulu. Thank you so much. Um, I love making Abbott Elementary so much and I am so happy to be able to live my dream and act out comedy. Yeah, and her co-star Cheryl Lee Ralph also became the second black woman to win Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series, which was 35 years ago after Jackie Henry won for her role in 227. Wow. And also Ali Wong and Stephen Mm -hmm. Ewan from Beef, which if you haven't watched Beef on Netflix, Mm -hmm. I look at Dave as if he's seen it, and I know you haven't. (laughs) But it's it's really good. And for Ali Wong to get recognized, and then Stephen Ewan, who is like one of my favorites from the Walking Dead series, yes, you know, to see him come up and get his recognition as a serious actor as well, not just a character from a zombie show. Yeah, uh, it was really rewarding. Actually, the Emmys. It was enjoyable to to root for people and see them win. Yeah, yeah. you said Jennifer Coolidge was one of your favorites mm-hmm. last night, yeah. and she yeah, thanked- she thanked the evil gays. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, Jennifer Coolidge. You're welcome. She's so funny. <laughs> no, that's cute. Yeah. Well, it's good that we have. I mean, you can thank technology for this, right? Because now right. you have so many outlets. You don't have mm-hmm. to. Every show doesn't have to be homogenized. To uh, to appeal to a mass audience. Yeah, and you can watch these shows like on your tablets, on your phones, yeah. on your TV. I mean, just everywhere. And they're readily accessible, of course. And then, you know, I, I, I just loved last night's Emmys. I, I only caught clips of it, mm-hmm. but I, I think I caught like all the important clips, I feel like. So, <laughs> you yeah. Did. You did. Thank you, Mickey. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.